So last week we looked at the subject of qualifications for leadership in the church, elders specifically, uh, as described in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And when we went there, we actually skipped over a a section of chapter 2 because elders are like fathers. They're like spiritual dads in the church. So we wanted to make that related to Father's Day. And so that's where we went there. Um, Paul's purpose in writing to his disciple Timothy, who he had appointed to pastor the church in Ephesus, which is modern day in modern modern day Turkey, was as he said in in 1 Timothy 3:15 that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Some of you are still learning that, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So one reason he is concerned about keeping good order in the church is that some some leaders or former leaders were um, teaching false doctrine, not not gospel-centered truth. And so in in the first part of chapter two, Paul says he wants the church to pray for all people that the gospel would spread and all people would have a chance to hear the gospel and be saved. In bringing up the issue of the progress of the gospel, he will talk about some issues of disruption in the church. He addresses some matters that needed to be um, corrected for the church to be healthy, to carry out its role as pillar of the truth of the gospel. So he gets down some nitty-gritty issues today in, in talking about that. And you'll be happy to know this passage includes some of the most contested, argued about verses in the New Testament. Isn't that exciting? So stand up, and we're going to read this text and see if you can identify the verses that cause all the excitement. This is 1 Timothy 2, chapter chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Yeah. Father, we ask your help with this passage. Grant us your spirit so we can understand it and apply it. Give us a heart to receive it. Your word, in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Paul had just said that the church should pray for all people, and now he instructs how they are to pray. So he's concerned about how they are to pray, and he's addressing the men in particular, so they might have had a specific problem with these things. Um, He said that they should pray without anger or quarreling. He's confronting a problem in the way that they were praying. They were praying in anger, perhaps. Uh, Perhaps due to unresolved conflict. So one thing, when you pray, 
deal with your anger. Deal with unresolved conflict. Don't just go to God as if it's okay for you to have unresolved conflict. Pray having dealt with it. Don't be carrying anger in your prayers. And he said lifting up holy hands. Now, that that's not necessarily specifically a, a prayer posture. It could be. Uh, they often prayed with on their knees with their hands up, and so he, he could have been referring to that, but, but he said lifting up holy hands. And he's talking more specifically about approaching God in purity. So the question we need to ask ourselves when we're coming to God and worshiping in prayer is do we have unconfessed sins in our lives? Are, are there sins, are there areas of disobedience that we're holding on to that we're not dealing with? If, if you have that, you need to confess your sins and pray in sincere reverence and trust in God. Don't just go through the motions. Pray from your heart. Pray from your heart. Paul wants men in every place to pray in purity without anger and quarreling. Uh, in every place where Christians gather, uh, certainly every place that they were gathering in, in Ephesus, and he's, um, he's talking about that he wants men in every place to, to pray with purity. And this is in keeping with Paul's desire that they pray for the progress of the gospel among all people. Then in verse 9, he addresses some issues with the women. He says, he begins by stating that women should adorn themselves in respectable clothing. Paul, what do you mean by respectable clothing? Do you have to get a Walmart or Target or Macy's? What do you mean? Well, he means with, as he said, with modesty and self-control. Okay, so dress modestly. Don't dress provocatively, uh, as if you're trying to attract attention. Dressing with self-control means dressing decently or in moderation. There were certain types of clothing that were um, understood in that in that day to honor husbands and others that meant you were immoral. So choose the honorable clothing, he says. Don't dress like prostitutes. The second aspect of dressing in respectable clothing is that it's not with braided hair and gold or costly attire. So what's he talking about there? Paul wasn't saying that all styles of braided hair were inappropriate. It was really pr pretty common then for to have a braided hairstyle. In the context, he's talking about not putting on a display of wealth with an extravagant hairstyle, with gold and pearls or costly attire. In fact, the costly attire then could have uh, cost as much as 19 years of, of a working person's wages. So he said, don't, don't dress gaudy. Don't dress excessively like that. None of this means you must dress in frumpy or ugly clothing, so you don't need to, the front factor. It just means don't dress to draw inappropriate attention to yourself when gathering with God's people for worship. So if you're, if you're wearing like $100,000 clothes today, go change. In verse 10, he gives the third aspect of dressing respectively, is that rather than majoring on outward appearance anyway, the woman should be more concerned with an outward way of life that reflects godliness, so with good works. Clothe yourself with good works, he says. So far, so good? All right. Now let's get to the exciting stuff. Verse 11. Paul's continuing to address disruptions in the church by addressing the question of leadership. 
that's where he goes in chapter 3. So in chapter 3, he'll talk about elders. We, we saw that last week. Read about deacons next week. He begins by talking about how women are to learn in, in the gatherings of the church for the teaching of God's word and worship. So when the church comes together, what do you do or what do you don't do? He says they are to learn quietly, quietly. This doesn't mean that women can't say anything in church at all, in church gatherings, so you can make some noise. In, in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul refers to women praying and, and sharing prophecy. So he's not saying that women don't have any place to talk or to pray in church. The word quiet was, a, was also used in verse 2 of this chapter, 2, verse 2, where he says that we may lead a quiet life. So he's not talking about leading a life of total silence. He's talking about leading an orderly life, a life that's calm and orderly. Um, so it's, it's a peaceful, orderly life. So women are not to heckle and, and shout down the teaching elder. So thank you for not doing that. When the word of God is being taught, women are to learn quietly in all submissiveness, he says. To submit to something or someone is to subject yourself to the authority of that teaching or the person teaching. Paul isn't saying that women were to submit to all men in the church. He's saying they are to submit to have a submissive attitude to the word of God being taught by that teaching elder. Then, verse 12. The second qualifier for what Paul means by quietly is that women are not to take on the, the lead teaching or governing roles in the church. Now, was Paul anti-woman? Was he a woman hater? No. He had lots of women that he, he extols in his letters for their ministries and he respects them. But it's because the leading of the church is based upon a family model. As, as we saw in, in the beginning in chapter 3, verse 15, where Paul says the church is God's household. And the elders are the spiritual dads, the spiritual fathers of the church. So they're, they're the heads, and they're chiefly responsible for the care and direction of the church. So when it comes to the prim primary concern for the teaching of God's word and to lead shepherd, shepherding roles for the church, women are to remain quiet, so to speak. Again, this doesn't mean that they never talk in church context. It means that when it comes to the primary teaching and governing roles of the church, they're in the role of following and supporting. Now, I don't tell you how abominable this sounds in our culture um, today, even among Bible-believing Christians. It's seen as a throwback to the Dark Ages. How could we support or believe something that, that seems so oppressive and demeaning of women with all the progress we've made in, in women's equality? Now, there have been atrocious examples of men's oppression of women throughout history, both in the church and out, out of the church. So that's there's been a lot of that, and so a lot of concern about that uh, feeds into this. Few things are uglier than a man who uses the Bible to justify his um, being domineering and abusive to his wife in particular, and to other women as well. A few things more offensive than that. And I've, I've been aware of lots of those situations where men have used the Bible's teaching to, to be oppressive and, and, and harassing to, to, to their wives. And if you're doing it, stop it.
one thing we need to get perspective on is submission. Submission to someone doesn't mean you're, you're inherently inferior to that person. People are equal in value to one another, even though they have different roles. Christians are, Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 5, that Christians are to submit to one another. So he says, hey, submit to one another. Um, do your, serve one another. Servants submit to their masters. Children submit to parents. Husbands submit to Christ. Wives submit to husbands. It's common, common practice in the church to be submitting to one another. But the greatest example of submission is Jesus Christ, God's Son. He submitted to God the Father. Even though he was and is equal with God, he submitted to him as a bondservant, a slave, obeying him to the point of death on the cross. Father, Son, and Spirit are, are equal, but they have different roles. Even though Christ was equal with God, he became the ultimate servant. He taught his disciples that being first in God's kingdom requires being the servant of all. So it's not demeaning to be submissive. Equality of value or nature doesn't mean sameness of role. Our culture refuses to accept that. Many in our today say that equality of personhood requires having the same role. If I'm equal to you as a human being, I, I, must, I must, I have the right to be able to do everything that you do. But the scripture says that God created man and woman in his image of equal dignity and worth, but with different comp complementary roles in the family. And that carries over into the church as, as it is God's family. And this passage says nothing about women teaching or, or leading men in business, government, or academic settings. It's not talking about that. It's only talking about the church. Now, just taking verse 12 at face value, it seems pretty straightforward. So how could there be so much debate over its meaning? Well, a writer and speaker, Claire Smith, she's Australian who has a Ph.D. in New Testament, writes several years ago in the midst of a debate about the ordination of women in various churches, a, a young non-Christian reporter asked her if, if there was a verse in the Bible to support her belief that women ought not to be ordained as congregational leaders. She says, I, I quoted her these two verses from 1 Timothy chapter 2. She wrote them down and, and she read them back to me. That's what it says, she asked me, looking puzzled. Yes, that's what it says. I replied, preparing myself to explain what it meant and why it applied to today's church and, and why it meant that women ought not to be ordained. But there was no need because her response was, well, what's the argument about then? I would have thought if, if that's what it says, that it, that settles it, doesn't it? We get that non-Christian people, the world, rejects Paul's teaching due to their view of equality. That, that equality of worth must mean identical roles. But how is it that in the church, the straightforward sense of, of, of this passage, verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, is so debated, doubted, and denied. Well, first, we'll consider one of the most common ways that this passage says doesn't apply, what is said that this passage doesn't apply. Then we'll look at Paul's reasons for what he says in these verses. Then we'll consider some more objections, and then we'll finish with some implications. Well, first, one of the most common reasons 
most common ways people reject what this passage seems to teach is that Paul was simply accommodating to the culture of his day. He was just going with the, the culture. That was the culture. And if he was here today, he, he would not have taught that. Um, let's look at the reasons that Paul wrote what he wrote. And, and, and we should notice that nowhere does he say that uh, a reason that there are no women who are, uh, the reason that women shouldn't be the lead teachers in the church is there, there are no women who are competent or gifted to teach. He doesn't say that. So the reasons he gives is in verse 13 and 14. In verse 13 he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Say, so for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Is that the best you can do? What is, what's that got to do with anything? Well, what Paul is saying that God's intention and design in forming Adam first was that he was to be the head of the couple. God could have made them at the same time, but he, he formed Eve from Adam's genetic material. And he was to have the lead responsibility in the relationship and mission of the couple to fill and develop the earth. Eve was to complement, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, complement Adam as his helper. So Paul is not just accommodating the culture of his day. He grounds his reason for women not having to lead teaching governing roles in the church in the order of creation and what that meant for uh, the relationship between man and woman in, in marriage. And then in verse 14, he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So the second reason Paul gives is that is the fall of the couple into sin, the, the pattern that took place there. Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. So what's Paul's point? Is he saying that women are more gullible than men and more liable to teach false doctrine? No, that's not his point. What is he saying then? Well, Eve took it upon herself to doubt God's word and followed the serpent's advice and ate the fruit. She gave some to the man who was with her, and he ate it too. This is from Genesis chapter 3. And they both sinned at that point, but Genesis 3 makes it clear that they sinned in different ways. Instead of trusting the truthfulness and goodness of God's word, Eve was deceived by the serpent and led into sin. And after she ate, she also gave some to her husband and led her, her, her husband into sin. Adam, on the other hand, had been given the responsibility to lead his wife, not to just go along with her if she was going in the wrong direction. So he disobeyed God by eating the fruit God had told him not to eat and by abdicating his responsibility of leadership to his wife. So part of Paul's point here is that when men and women reject God's order for, for men and women, uh, disorder and happens and still happens. Paul did make a point to say that Adam was not deceived and Eve was deceived. So, so what's the point there? Is, is it that because, it is that because Eve's sin involved deception. The consequence in, in the, the fall for women is that they don't take the, the lead teaching role. Now, he'd already established that before the fall, but Eve's deception, deception becomes the sin caused pro, prohibition after the fall. So he grounds his reasons for this in, in the order of the fall and the order of creation. Now, other ways that the teaching in verses 11 and 12 is denied are redefined today. Uh, one is them, some just outright deny that 1 Timothy was written by Paul. They say, hey, Paul didn't write it. 
It's not inspired scripture. It's not God's word. Or along with that, some will say um, they, they agree that Paul wrote it. They just say he was wrong. Paul was just wrong. The assumption is that our view of equality is right, so this must be wrong. So it's our word against God's word, which we can't go along with. Another uh, thing that people do is they, they take Galatians 3.28 as to, to mean that in Christ, differences in men's and women's roles have been done away with. So I think we've got Galatians 3.28 on the screen. And this is a key text that they use to cancel out all other teaching that sounds different than what they think it means. So um, Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But the Galatians passage is not doing away with all differences between these groups. Rather, it is saying for those in Christ, old sinful barriers are done away with. And that in spite of differences in roles, ethnic backgrounds, and social status, we are united as one people in Christ. Jews still had their culture and, and the Gentiles still had their culture. Um, but they are now one. So this doesn't do away with male and female roles and differences. It, it says that even though we have differences in roles and, and cultures, we're, we're united in Christ. That's what Galatians 3.28 means. Another way that people um, say these te- these verses don't mean what we what they seem to mean is that in Paul's day they say women weren't educated. So once that is corrected, the, the prohibition of two eleven and twelve no longer applies. But Paul grounded his teaching in universally applicable patterns in Genesis, not in lack of education. And besides, in in Ephesus there was a lot of educated women, so that wasn't the issue. Another way that people object to these texts is Paul just meant that women are not to teach or lead in an authoritarian or di- dictatorial manner. But that isn't what Paul says. He just says that women are not to have lead roles. So he's, he says not to teach or, or exercise authority over a man. He doesn't say that not just in a wrong way. Besides, men are not to lead in an authoritarian or dictatorial role. So this doesn't apply to women only. It, it applies to all people. If you're teaching or if you're leading, you don't do it in, in an authoritarian, dictatorial way. Another way that people object to this text is Paul was, they say Paul was writing to correct a specific problem in the, in the Ephesian church. So we, we're not entirely sure what that was, but, but he didn't intend that restriction on women having the lead roles to apply to all churches of all times. But again, Paul grounds his reason in, in patterns for all people from the Genesis account of the creation fall. So it's not just based upon uh, the circumstances that were going on in the church at that time only. He bases it on permanent things. There are other similar objections, but they all miss what Paul has plainly taught in this passage. At this point, a fair question is, well, what can women do? They can do a lot of stuff. They can do everything they want to do. They just can't be an elder or have the lead teaching role when the church is gathered. They can do anything that doesn't contradict Scripture, so they can just go crazy, have a heyday, minister your feet away. 
We never have too many women te- women teaching and, and shepherding women. That's never like, hey, we we got we have way too much of that going on, so we we don't need you. That's never going to happen. Um. So for Sunday gatherings, they can pray, they can share testimonies, they can read scripture, they can lead in singing and worship, they can share about things going on in mission and ministry. Women might share about what's going on in foster care ministry, sanctity of life ministry, or about raising third culture kids on the mission field. Women can be on mixed leadership teams. They can teach children and youth in situations where her age makes her like a mother teaching her sons. In mixed gender small groups, uh, a woman can co-lead with her husband. Uh, you might recall in, in Acts, they had a, there was a star, a rising star speaker uh, on the Christian circuit named Apollos. And Aquila and Priscilla, a man and, and wife, um, taught Apollos about the Christian faith more accurately. There are significantly more women on, on the mission field than men. There's a lot more women out there in missions than men. I've heard more than one account of where women had led people to Christ on the mission field and some men came to Christ. And uh, a new church was born. With the men being baby Christians, the women discipled the church until the men were mature enough to fill elder roles. And we could go on. There are many more examples. But then we get verse 15, and we get this really crazy verse. Crazy just because it's hard to understand. But it's God's word, so Paul knew what he meant. I hope I, I'm, I'm clued into what he meant. We'll see. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So what does Paul mean? Paul is clear in all his writings that salvation is, is by grace through faith in Christ only, that we can't earn or merit our salvation by good works, including the work of childbearing, So if you think you got saved by having kids, that's probably not what he's saying. It's a nice thought. Do you feel like you deserve to be saved by having kids? Still, this is a notoriously difficult passage to interpret. So for the sake of time and not to belabor, I'll I'll just tell you what I think the best understanding of this is. Paul was talking about, in the first part of the verse, he's talking about Eve's deception when she took the the lead in eating the fruit and how she became a transgressor. So in the first half of the verse, Paul is is talking about Eve, saying she, verse 14, he just talked about Eve, and he said she will be saved through childbearing. This is an allusion to the promise God made in Genesis 3.15, that the offspring of the woman would overcome the offspring of the serpent, which was fulfilled in Jesus' defeat of Satan and sin on on his death on the cross and in his resurrection. So. It alludes to that, but Paul is talking about Eve as an analogy of women because you can see that he changes from she to they in in the second part of the verse. So if she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. So some say that uh, she will be saved through childbearing means she will be preserved or kept safe from what? Preserved or kept safe? from insignificance due to her role restriction, that seems like a stretch. I think what Paul is saying is that a woman's salvation and working out of her salvation, living out her salvation, is not uh, based on changing her role in the church, 
Rather, she is to accept her God-given role and live that out as she continues and perseveres in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Genuine saving faith always perseveres and produces love and holiness. But why does Paul uh, focus on childbearing as, the, as an example of what she's persevering? Why does he choose that? Because it is the most obvious example of the God-designed difference in role between men and women. Of course, not all women have children, but only women can have children. I hope that's not news. Only women can have children. So what, what he's saying is the fact that God has designed it this way shows that the role differences between men and women are rooted and grounded in God's design, God's creation order. So should we not trust God's word on all the matters it addresses? Can we not trust God's word? Even if it goes against what the culture is screaming in our ears and saying, you can't, this can't be true. It's got to be other than what God's word says. Regardless of how much the world insists that his ways are oppressive and backward and, and and the world's ways are enlightened and, and liberating. God is wiser than we are. Have you noticed that? God is wiser than we are. His ways are best for our good, and it's a beautiful thing if we follow God's ways. Mary Cassian, a professor at Southern Seminary, says the following. I believe the question of how to honor Christ through the exercise of my teaching gift revolves around the issue of whether I'm acting like a church father. Am I doing something that is or will likely be construed as setting the doctrinal and spiritual direction for the entire church family, for my entire church family? She says, I defer to God's desire that it is the church fathers who deliver the doctrinal instruction and direction for my church family. I do this joyfully. I'm not a church father. I'm a woman and therefore a spiritual mom. I delight in the fact that God has created us male and female and wired us to be spiritual dads and moms. Arguably, because I'm a gifted teacher, I could do a better job of interpreting the text and delivering the sermon than many church fathers do. But that would miss the point. It's not about competence. God created the family, and in the family, men are supposed to, do, to be the dads and women are supposed to be the moms. It's not a question of who is better at it or more gifted. Male and female roles are neither identical nor interchangeable. I've been greatly helped by many women uh, in the church and, and Christian leaders, teachers. Uh, they're, they're, they've been a huge blessing in my life. And men, we need you to step forward and, and be leaders. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to receive the offering. Father, we thank you that Christ, though he is one with you in his essence and in his being, he is equal with you, he submitted to your plan and saved us and accomplished the greatest good by, by not taking the lead role, but by following your direction. Father, I thank you for this hard teaching because it's your design for us. May we as a church continue to honor men and women in their various roles. 
May you continue to raise up men and women who are serving you with joy and spirit power and gospel-centeredness. May we be an example of how you want life to be in your church, the, the household of God. May we be encouraged as, as women and men, Father, to live out, to exercise our gifts in the way that you've designed us to, complementary, different to one, from one another, but united in Christ. Continue to raise up men and women who are loyal to you, who are faithful to your word, who are zealous for the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.